So those of you that know me well, you know that I'm a fairly nostalgic type of person. So when I go, when I go back to Columbus, when I go back to my hometown, I usually, it may sound silly to some of you, I usually you know, go off by myself, I take the vehicle or whatever, and I drive around town, and I reminisce about, you know, oh, I, I played ball here, or I did that there, and all this kind of stuff. I'm just, I'm really, really nostalgic in that way. I love getting together with old friends, uh, these conversations that I told you about as we, you know, as we were worshiping, that's just because I wanted to reconnect with old friends. Um, I'm that way. I love to keep in communication. I love to reminisce. I love nostalgia. I love all these things. I love, my mom makes fun of me every time I go home because, she shows me to this spare bedroom, and she says, you see those boxes? Yes, ma'am. Those are your boxes. You left, you left home 20 years ago, and they're still here. You know, I've got to leave something there for me, to, for me to, to comb through, to look at old pictures and all that kind of stuff. A lot of it incriminating, but some things you forget, and it brings back this, these memories and this wave of emotion. Most of them good. Some of them not so good. But I'm a very nostalgic person. But this, on this particular journey through nostalgia, I took my son. Yes, by force, but I took him. And uh, we went riding around town. And as a joke to send to some friends, I took a picture uh, of myself outside of the entrance to the, to the, it's now a stadium, to the baseball stadium slash park field that I played baseball in. Because I grew up, loved baseball, played baseball. It was a big part of my life. And so I take this real stoic picture, you know, looking like a, you know, as much as I can, like a hero, right? Standing in front of the baseball entryway. Wesley takes a picture. I send it to some friends. It's a, it's a good laugh. But it made me think of when I had to try out to make that team. Do, they, do people still do that, or is it kind of everybody gets a trophy, everybody makes a team kind of a thing? So back then we had to try out, and this was kind of a big deal. I played baseball all my life up to this point. And the day for tryouts come, I'm a 15-year-old boy. I played park league as far as I could, and they were having tryouts to make the high school team. I said, I want to do that. You know, I know the fundamentals. I know the mechanics of baseball, so I should be good to go. So I go out there, and the, the, the baseball team was fairly successful, so the coach was looking for, you know, players that were just a little bit above average. And I knew that going into it, so there was this wave of emotions, this wave of nerves that came over me because I'm like, I've got to perform above average, which I'm average, so I've got to, you know, step it up. Somehow I've got to dig deep enough to perform well enough so that I will stand out so that I can make the team. So you get out there and you have to, you know, they're wanting to do speed trials to see how fast you are. I'm like, this isn't soccer, this isn't football. Why are we running bases? You know, and so, but yeah, that's what he did. He would line us up and we'd run two by two and... And I was like, I've got to beat everybody I run up against. I've got to beat everybody. I've got to stand out as being fast, which I'm not super fast, you know, but I was faster than the guy I ran against because he was a little heavier than me, so I scooted on by. Um, and then we had to hit. I'm like, oh, okay, I've got to hit the ball. And these are things I'm used to doing. I do this all the time. I spent a lot of time in the batting cage. I learned off of a tee. I did coach pitch. I did Dixie Youth. I did all these things. So standing 60 feet away from a pitcher was not an issue for me. It was not a scary thing for me. And the coach wasn't going to be throwing curve balls or sliders or he wasn't going to be throwing particularly fast or at high velocities. He would just want to make sure that you could place the ball where you wanted to place the ball, that you had good hand-eye coordination, that you could make contact or you're a contact hitter or you're a power hitter, which looking at me, you would think I'm a power hitter, but I was really a contact hitter, right? So, um, so I get up there, and I'm doing my thing, and I do okay. I do okay. I do okay in the speed trials. I do okay hitting. I do okay fielding because I know mechanics. I know fundamentals. So if I knew these things, and we're so used to those things, why was I so nervous, and why did it matter so much to me that I go out here and that I perform well? Well, it's because I knew what the coach was looking for. There was something specific that he was wanting to see as a performance from those who were trying to make the team. And by the grace of God, I somehow managed to perform well enough that I made the team and so spent the next several years playing ball for the New Hope Trojans. And it was fantastic. It was a lot of fun. And you know, you're not that different than I am. We're not so different. We have bosses that we want to perform for. We, want to, uh, we know that our bosses are looking for something out of us. You know, and so we want to perform at a certain level so that we can meet those expectations that our boss or our wife or our husband or someone like that might have in our lives. And so this is not a strange thing to us. You may not have ever tried out for something and made it or tried out for something and not made it, but we all have someone in our life or something that we want to 
uh, we want to meet those expectations. And I think it's interesting that when we get to this particular part in John, as we continue this section where Jesus encounters this Samaritan woman, this woman at the well, he has this conversation with her. And then he continues this conversation where he starts to talk about worship. But he doesn't just talk about worship. He's very specific when he says, look, there's a very specific way of worship that I'm looking for. Not just any worship will do is basically what he gets to. He gives a prescribed methodology. He gives a criterion for acceptable worship. Now, worship is sometimes kind of difficult to define. Worship comes in different shapes, forms, and fashions. So this should be of particular interest to us because we want to be the person that God is seeking as a worshiper. That's what we want to be. So here's my objective today. Here's what I want to get to. I want to identify and understand the non-negotiables of worship in order that we might become the type of worshiper that God is looking for. Because at the end of the day, let's be honest, shouldn't that be the desire of our hearts? If God is searching for for something, if God has said, here's the criterion, here's the standard, we don't want to miss that. We don't want to fall short over here. We don't want to come up empty. We don't want to come up bankrupt. He says, here it is. I've given you a two-component criterion. That's it. Worship truth. Here it is. That's what's going to be pleasing and acceptable to me. All other forms of worship are not biblical worship and therefore rejected. This is the crux of what he's saying here. So this is the objective, again, to identify and understand the non-negotiables of worship in order that we might become the type of worshipers that God is looking for. So turn your attention to the text of John chapter 4. Just as a brief recap, Jesus could have gone any number of ways to get to Galilee, which is where he's going to continue his ministry, but he doesn't do that. He goes through Samaria. Because there's a divine appointment for him in Samaria. Jesus knew what was going to be happening in Samaria. He knew that he was going there to encounter this woman. This was not happenstance. This was not a coincidence. He didn't show up there thinking, I hope somebody shows up. I'm just going to grab the first person I see. I believe this was a divine appointment. I believe this was absolutely intentional by God. Jesus submitting himself to the will of God. Jesus goes through Samaria, even though the scripture says that the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Now, one thing I failed to point out two weeks ago when I preached on that text I mentioned the Greek form of that word. I mentioned the fact that the scripture says they had no dealings with each other. And if you just do a a, a cursory perusal of that, you might take that at face value, but there's something else going on here. It doesn't mean they didn't interact because the disciples had gone to buy food in Samaria. So there was interactions, there were transactions, there were exchanges that took place between Jews and Samaritans, even though there was bad blood. But what that means is Jesus, when it says that they had no dealings with one another, and I know it's strange when it comes to English, but what it literally means, and I checked multiple sources, and they all verify this, is that it had to do with the vessel that she was drawing. And the connotation was, Jews do not drink from the same vessels that a Samaritan would drink from. Could you imagine? And they think they're spiritually unclean. They think they're the dregs of society. So for him to drink from that vessel was, would, would blow the mind of any Jew. It would just be atrocious to them. So Jesus has this exchange. He does these things. He does what you would not think that he would do as a Jew. If you're somebody in first century looking at him, dealing with this woman, And so Jesus has this exchange with her, and he tells her that, you know, there's a well that she can draw from that that she will find true satisfaction. Otherwise, she's going to keep going to all these other wells, and they'll never truly satisfy her. But there is a fountain of living water from which she can get water that will actually satisfy her. And his name is Jesus. And he explains this to this woman, but here we are in the text. She's still not getting it you get this problem of a natural mind that is set on natural things. She, uh, Austin uh, taught on John chapter 3, this, the interaction between Jesus and Nicodemus. Nicodemus didn't understand what it meant to be born again. How can I go into my mother's womb a second time? Because that's a natural mind that's set on natural 
things. Outside of Christ, we operate with a natural mind. That's why the Bible speaks in these uh, uh, um, categories of impossibility, for lack of a better thought process there. He basically says these things are impossible. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. It's impossible for you to to give yourself over to the gospel, to believe the gospel, to subscribe to the gospel. It's impossible for you to do that in your deadness. This is all throughout the scriptures. 1 Corinthians, 1 John, I believe. It's all throughout there. Why? It's because there's a natural mind at work here. And a natural mind can't see supernatural things. It can't comprehend it. It can't process these supernatural things. And this is the problem that the Samaritan woman has. She's hearing Jesus speak in these metaphors, and she's missing it. He says, look, I'm the fountain of living water. You can get this thing. And we look at it, and we say, that's not very cryptic. I can look at that, and I can tell anybody who's anybody can look at this text and know, man, Jesus is, is saying, here I am. You know, come, come to me. I'll give you something. I'll give you something special. I'll give you something so that you're no longer thirsty. I will satisfy you. But she's not getting it. But the difference is you're a natural mind. You're a supernatural mind who can consider and process the supernatural things because you've been regenerated, because you have had your heart of stone replaced with a heart of flesh, and therefore you can think and process and respond rightly to these things. But she doesn't get it because it's a natural mind set on natural things. So here's what Jesus does. She's not getting it. She's not getting what she believes or what others might think is cryptic language. So Jesus becomes a little more open, a little more forward, a little more obvious, a little more revelatory about what he's getting at. And listen, this is where the text picks up. See, verse 15, it shows that she's not getting it because the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. And she's not tracking with the metaphor. She's not saying, I know you're talking about you. I want you. Not yet. Not yet. She's not there yet. This woman said, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw. She's thinking practically. She's thinking, man, that would be great if I don't have to walk all the way out here in the, hot of, in the, in the heat of the day. That'd be great if I don't have to go to all these places. You know what? Because that's a long way for me as a, as a woman to carry this heavy, heavy bucket of water. She's thinking practically. Man, yeah, show me some other places. There are a well in the shade. Is there something that's, you know, 10 feet instead of 10 miles? I don't know. I mean, there's, there's all these things. So she's not getting it. So Jesus says, okay, let me shift gears here. He says, go call your husband and come here. This is way out of left field, right? If you're just reading through this, you're like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> if I'm sitting there beside Jesus at the well just watching all this unfold, I'm like, what? Man, stay, stay focused. Stay focused, Jesus, right? This is what I would be thinking. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right. And saying, I have no husband. What you have said is true. I'm sorry. Uh, he says, you are right when you said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What, if, what you said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So Jesus shifts gears here. And he tells her something that he would not know. He shows to her that there's something different about the man that's standing in front of her, sitting in front of her, and she needs to really clue in to what he's trying to say. And I think this is a gracious act of God. When Jesus didn't have to be that forward, he didn't have to reveal that much about himself. He does something special for this woman that he has not done for most people up to this point in his 30 years of life, presumably. At the wedding of Cana, he performed the miracle, but even when he was asked about the wine running out, Jesus says, look, woman, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. I'm not saying he performed the miracle reluctantly because that implies other things that I don't think are true. But he performed the miracle. But he did it in a small context where not a lot of people knew what was going on. And the reason he said, what does this have to do with me? My time has not yet come. Because once the word was out that he was equating himself with God, that was the beginning of the end. And until the right time, Jesus was not going to begin those things. Until the right time. So now we have him doing for this woman something that very few people had seen from the divine Son of God. And that's him showing her that he has divine knowledge. He says, I know your story. Having never met you, I haven't talked to somebody and gotten the scoop. I haven't sat 
by the watering hole or another watering hole to listen to the gossip so that I can know how to strategically approach you. I haven't done those things. He just knew because God revealed these things to him. God could have either revealed these things to him or Jesus could have chosen at that time to tap into his divine knowledge as God himself. Don't know. Doesn't matter. Either way, either way he knew. So he tells this woman, basically, listen, I'm not someone to be trivial with. I'm not just anybody. I'm not just some Jew. I know your story. I know your sins. I knew your sins before I offered you this living water. So you've got to imagine that she's starting to make this connection. Because she responds by saying, well, I know that the Messiah will come. And I'll get to that in a little bit. So she's starting to work through and process all of this information. And then Jesus enters into this very unique dialogue with her, a very helpful dialogue to us, because it's going to show us the two primary components or the two only two essential components for acceptable and successful worship so here's our primary teaching outline we want to become the worshiper that God desires we want to become the worshiper that God desires worship is not a foreign concept to any of us it's just not even before you knew about biblical worship, even before you started attending a church body, before you started coming to a service in a building and you started singing songs to God, you, you sang along with the music or you sat under the preaching of the word, before you did any of those things, you were a worshiper. You're made as a worshiper because God made you for his glory. Glory, bringing God glory and worship are two sides of the same coin. This is what Paul expresses in Romans chapter 12 when he says, this is your life. Your life is a living sacrifice. Everything you do, you do with the attitude, with the disposition of thanksgiving and humility before God, recognizing his deeds, his excellent greatness, as the scripture says in multiple places, Exodus chapter 3, Psalm 150, recognizing these things. All that you do, though you may not be singing a song, though you might not be sitting under the teaching of God's word, you do things with the intention of, of honoring Jesus with your ethics, honoring Jesus with your attitude, honoring Jesus in the conversations you have, honoring Jesus with the way that you work. These are ways to worship because you are rightly revering, rightly respecting, rightly offering God the credit that he is due and the attention and the loyalty that he is due. But worship's not foreign to us. We're hardwired for worship. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. That's how it was from the beginning. Inanimate objects glorify God. Now, we're different. We're different. We make willful choices to honor Jesus. We praise Jesus actively with our life. In our minds, in our renewed minds, we consider truth. We consider these things and we say, based on this truth, I worship you. We are actively doing this of our own will. But then you have the rocks that will cry out if you don't. God will get his glory God's glory is not contingent upon your faithfulness, and that's a good thing. God's not gonna, he's not going to risk or chance his glory to you. He's not going to say, well, I hope I'm glorified today. I hope that Austin or Alan really steps up to the plate because I'm, I'm running low on the glory meter and I need a little bit more. That's not how it works. He's going to get his glory. The fact that we get to be a part of that is just a bonus for us. But our worship is often misappropriated. Anytime we elevate creature or, the, or a created thing over the creator, that is a misappropriation of worship. That is idolatry. That is what Romans 1 addresses. And it comes in all forms. We worship athletics. Do we not? We worship athletics. If anything can become an idol, that intrinsically means that we, or necessarily means that we worship that. We worship parenthood. We worship money. We worship security whether that's security from money or security in where we live or what neighborhood we're from we worship those things and I don't mean we sit down and we raise our hands and we close our eyes and we write songs and sing songs about where we live or we do those kind of things about our money you know Uh, of course songs have been written about money but that's not what I mean but I mean we say you know what my source of joy is in my security my source of joy is in my parenthood My source of joy is in my education or my favorite team is performing well. Clemson's doing great right now in football. What happens? What happens next year or the year after that if they have a bad season? If 
Clemson has a bad season and someone is just beside themselves. Their joy has been stripped from them because all of their joy came from the success of a football team. That means you have a problem of idolatry. And that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's one that applies to all of us in all different ways because we worship these things. We worship social acceptance. We worship comfort. We do worship comfort. How do I know these things? Because when these things are compromised, it has the tendency to rob us of our joy. And if it does, that could be an idol in your life. But worship has origins that are much deeper than what you may think. Worship exists because God exists. I'm going to say that one more time. Worship exists because God exists. There's been a misappropriation of worship. But I want to go to the standard. I want to go to the absolute truth of worship. And we understand it from the Bible. Its origins are from eternity past. Not just the beginning of time, as such as creation, you know, man, the earth, the cosmos, all these things. But it goes for eternity past. This is where worship began because God has always existed. And God exists now and existed from eternity past to glorify himself. He says it over and over again. He's created a people for himself. He's created you for his own glory. Listen to Ephesians 1, 5-6. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of the what? Glory of his grace. All these things he's done that we benefit from. We prosper. He's done them for his glory. And he's just as glorified and predestining us to the praise of the glory of his grace or he's just as glorified in saying this person has a terminal illness and I'm going to remove it from them miraculously. He's just as glorified in that as he is in someone who has lived a life in darkness and spend the rest of their life separated from him because it is glorifying to his justice. Isaiah 43, 7 says, Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. It was I who created them. For what? Made them for his glory. Not your glory, but his glory. Worship is defined in a number of different ways. We exist to bring glory to God. And it does raise a, a question just follow me on this. It can be a little convoluted, but I want to present this and give an answer. Why would God, who is sufficient in himself, he's sufficient in himself to bring glory to himself. Why would he choose to make a people for the purpose of bringing him glory, knowing that we would fall short? It's not a question of if we fall short. It's when. The scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the what? Glory of God. We fall short of the glory that he's due every day. So why would God make a people when they can't rightly bring him the glory that he most assuredly deserves? And I think the answer is kind of summed up in this. And you've got to understand the way that my brain works is I'm talking about something and then I kind of play devil's advocate with myself. So I imagine that someone out here is thinking, well, if you're hammering this point that we're made for his glory, but we fail so often at bringing him the glory that he's due, why would he make us anyway or why would he why would he make us why would he not make us in such a way that we could bring him the proper glory and here's what i think is would be a sufficient answer to that so the question is why would god who is sufficient in himself to bring himself infinite glory choose to make a people for the purpose of bringing him glory knowing that we would fall short of that glory because without humanity there would be no context in which the glory of god's justice and mercy could be displayed our anemic offering of glory doesn't lessen the glory that God gets. You say, explain that. Well, if I am the active agent saying, I'm offering you praise, I'm offering you glory. God, I'm broken. God, sometimes my heart's not in it. Sometimes I have impure motives. But even if on my best day, covered in the righteousness of Christ, I can't compare to the glory God gives himself, essentially. I can't do it. So I fall short in some senses, and in some senses I'm doing the best that I can. Now God receives it, but I think that this is an act of glory. But what about those who 
say, you know what, I don't believe or I hate God, I shake my fist at God. I've known people like this who have lost loved ones and they don't turn to the gospel, they turn to anger and they say, God, why would you do that if you're loving? How could you let this happen? So they shake their fist. My pastor, my pastor and mentor growing up was one of these men. He's in heaven with Jesus now and he repented of that, but he told me when he lost his sister, he got very angry at God. Literally, his words were, I shook my fist at God questioning God's authority, questioning whether God knew what he was doing. In that moment, my former pastor's not bringing God glory actively. He's basically turning against God. But what happens is, even for people like that, even for people that die in their trespasses and sins, God satisfies his wrath, God satisfies his justice, and that is glorifying to God. It is glorifying to God. God dealing with sin glorifies him, so God becomes the active agent. He says, just like the rocks, if you're not going to do something, I'll get glory from rocks. God will get his glory, and not only will he get his glory, but he won't share his glory. He won't share his glory with another. So glorification and worship are two sides of the same coin, but it's been defined in different ways. And I started to do some research and see a bunch of different ways that people define it. And I was like, let me write my own, defini- my own definition, but I figured that might be um, pretentious. So I was like, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not even going to pretend to be able to rightly define it. You know? So I'm leaning on the shoulders of those who have talked about what worship is. So here's a couple of definitions. Biblical worship is a full life response involving the head or the mind, renewing of the mind, the head, the heart, and the hands to who God is and what he has done. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that. A secular source says worship is the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. I'm okay with that. Another source says, or a theologian says, worship is a valuing or a treasuring of God above all things. And I'm absolutely fine with that. I'm fine with all of these things. And we could keep defining worship and having subtle nuances of change in all these definitions. And for the most part, we would probably be happy with this. But I would say it's not easy to pin down in some kind of succinct statement the definition of worship. Because worship happens in our singing, worship happens in our obedience, worship happens in our meditation, it happens in our confession, it happens in our living, it happens in our dying. Paul says to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. However, what we can narrow down is a simple two-component criterion for biblical acceptable worship. So here's the meat of everything that we're going through in this text. Becoming a worshiper that God desires involves these things as far as worship. Worship must, first, worship must exist in its proper category. And let me explain where I'm getting this. So here we are with Jesus. He says, call your husband. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right. When you said this, for you have had five, and the man that you have now is not your husband. She says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where, is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, again, he's saying this. He said this to his mother. Woman, what does this have to do with me? Now he's saying, woman, not derogatory. He's saying, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation comes from the Jews. Who came from Jewish descent? Jesus. That sums that up, so I don't have to labor that point. Jesus is the salvation that Jesus is talking about. Salvation comes from the Jews. Christ is salvation. Christ is Messiah. And he says this, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers. Here we go, your first your first. Uh, your first moment, your first, the first evidence of where he's going. Okay, so cling to that, true worshiper. You're reading this, that's immediately where you should go there immediately and say, okay, that's what I want to be. I want to be a true worshiper because this, involves a, this, this implies that there's a false worshiper. So, okay, I'm intrigued, there's a true worshiper. What does the true worshiper do? He says the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. There it is. If you read nothing else, you stop right there on verse 23, and you say, here it is, Jesus has said it. 
The Father's looking for something. I want to be what He's looking for. If He's sifting through the cosmos, which is kind of strange because God just knows, so what does it mean by He's looking? Obviously, it's not that He doesn't know where they are and He's hoping to find them. That's not it. But there's this desire that worship would be this type of person in this type of way. That's the criteria and that's the standard. So worship must exist in its proper category. Here's what Jesus does. He shifts categories on this woman. She's talking about the place of worship. Oh, we would worship here at Gerizim. We would worship or you would worship there in Jerusalem. So she's talking about the place and he flips the script on her. He shifts gears. He shifts categories. He said, no, listen to me. He says, this is the issue. You don't need to be concerned with the place of worship you need to be concerned with the way of worship so there's a big difference in the place and the way of worship so he shifts it from the where to the way and from the where to the how listen i'm the product of a of a church culture and you're a product of of a church culture that very much emphasizes the place i mean we grew up this way this is god's house this is god's house and it's not, according to the Bible. This is a building. This is sheetrock and wood and concrete and drywall uh, and, you know, and all these things. This is, this, is, this is a building. Does all things belong to God? Absolutely. But God's house is not a house made with human hands. The Scripture says that you are the temple of God. I am the temple of God. That's where worship happens. And it happens rightly when it happens in the way that God has prescribed but I'm the product of a church culture that very much emphasizes a place of worship. And to be sure, to be sure, throughout history, you know, even in the Bible, there's the temple, there's a the tabernacle, there are these places that people would go for worship. We just talked about it when Jesus drove out the tax collectors, when he drove out the people from the temple, because it's a place of worship. Absolutely. So I'm not minimizing, I'm not taking away that there are places where worship happens. But to elevate the place over the way is wrong. It is wrong because, believe me, you can have the right place in the wrong way and no worship is happening. I mean, Jesus said this of the Pharisees, did he not? He said, you know, you, you, you people honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. The way we worship has always been of greater significance than the place that we worship. You can faithfully attend buildings designed and designated for worship, and yet worship could be the furthest thing from a reality that's taken place in that building because the way involves spirit and truth. If there is supposed worship that is devoid of spirit and truth, there is not worship in the biblical sense taking place. It's not happening. I would argue that in a Mormon temple or a Mormon church building, I would argue that there's not biblical worship that's happening. You can't redefine Christ outside of the context of the Bible and expect to honor Christ with your worship. It doesn't work that way because that is missing the element of truth. But it's also missing the element of the Spirit. Because if you have the wrong Christ, you don't have Christ, you don't have Christianity, you don't have a new nature, you don't have a new heart. You don't have the Spirit of God. So you must have both. So worship must exist in its proper category. The way matters more than the where. Worship must also involve the Spirit of God. Jesus begins, he says, Jesus, he says, you must worship in spirit and truth. This is what's acceptable, worship in spirit and truth. First, one must have the indwelling presence of God, the Holy Spirit in them. Very simple. Jesus said it himself, I believe the Holy Spirit indwelt believers after Pentecost. Jesus goes and he says, I'm, gonna, or I'm sorry, when, when, when Jesus left, he says, I, I will send a helper for you. The Holy Spirit began to indwell the people. I believe there's a difference when in the Old Testament when it says David was anointed and you have the Spirit of God active in David's life. I don't think that it was an indwelling. I believe David was a follower of Yahweh. I believe he's with God now. But I believe there was an anointing and that's the operation of the Holy Spirit because Jesus makes it clear that in the new covenant is when the Holy Spirit doesn't just anoint, doesn't just hover, but he indwells. As the third person of the Godhead, he indwells. So you have to have the Holy Spirit of God. You have to have salvation, essentially. One theologian said that worshiping in spirit is to give to God the, the, 
the homage of an enlightened mind and an affectionate heart. To properly revere God, to properly respect God, to have a renewed mind, which happens only for believers, to have an affectionate heart, a heart whose affections are stirred for Christ. The Holy Spirit is critical to our worship. The Holy Spirit functions in many, many, many different ways, but in worship specifically, in this, and it's, it's bigger than this, but just to, for time's sake, the Holy Spirit convicts, leading to repentance and confession. That's worship. You come here, and the Lord has dealt with you. The kindness of the Lord has led you to repentance, and you're singing, and you're, 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 you're saying, here's, here's truth. We see truth on the screen. We see we're singing these songs that it's just one truth after the next truth about Jesus who's body was who who suffered and you know uh, he became flesh he became sin who knew no sin as we sing Jesus beside every single song grace and peace all of these things are truths that just come straight from the text so we use those truths to frame our worship I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself but the Holy Spirit's involved in all these things and the Holy Spirit stirs our affections and the Holy Spirit brings us to a place of repentance he reignites passion in us encouraging us to stay faithful Holy Spirit's working the Holy Spirit makes revelation to us you know the only reason that you can understand these truths is because the Holy Spirit makes revelation to you that's part of the work of the Holy Spirit according to John 16 13 Jesus told his disciples when he the Holy Spirit the Spirit of truth comes he will guide you into all truth this is what the Holy Spirit does So worship must involve the Spirit of God. But also true worship always starts from within. Singing, raising hands, closing our eyes, crying, smiling, reaching to the heavens are all a byproduct of worship from within. What's on the outside is not always indicative of what's on the inside though, right? I can come here and I can close my eyes and I can raise my hands. I wouldn't be playing guitar at that point, but I could do those things. I could do those things, and I could do it with a heart that is away from God. I could do it with, with, with malice in my heart. I can do it with unresolved issues between me and my wife or me and my kids or me and you. I can do those things, and I can put on the face. You know what? Because I've been in this game for quite a while. Unfortunately, we can all pull the wool over each other's eyes. But what I should not be concerned with is whether or not I can deceive you. What I should be concerned with is what God really sees in my deception. Jesus told the Pharisees that they honored him with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. Let me give you a caution. As I was thinking about this, it, it kind of came like a wave over me, like, good gracious, we need to really, really be careful. Going through the motions is a serious offense to God. If we come here and our hearts are in the wrong place, I'm not saying stay home. This is where you need to be. When you're angry, you know, when you want to punch someone in the face, this is where you need to be, you know? This is a place for the sick. We're all weak. We're all broken. We need one another. It baffles my brain. It baffles my brain how someone has a difficult day or a bad day at work, and they say, you know what? I'm just not in the mood for church. I can get it on a a human level, but it grieves my heart because I'm like, that's when I need the body of Christ the most. I need someone to speak gospel to me and say, man, you're focusing on the wrong thing. I need someone to have the courage to come to me and say, you know what, I see that you're in a bad spot, man. But, but, but your issues are rooted here. You have unbelief in this. And someone to help me mine through and find out these unbelief issues that are hindering my worship. It's not going to happen when I'm saying, you know what, I'm going to choose in my pitifulness and my pouting and all of these things because this didn't go my way or because this altercation happened my response is i'm going to flee from the presence of god i'm going to not be around the body of christ that's going to encourage me this isn't in my notes this is just something that i'm convictional about and applies to me so going through the motions is a serious offense you are attempting if you're going through the motions let me explain this you are attempting to deceive an all-knowing god by offering disingenuous glory that he takes very seriously. Glory that he says, I will not share with another. But it's like we try to pump fake him. My heart's in the wrong place, but I don't want people to know that I got junk. I don't want people to know that I got some mess going on in my life. So I'm going to smile. 
And I'm going to do what every cashier does. How's your day? Oh, it's great. Keep moving. If you ever have this opportunity as you're checking out and want to talk to a cashier and your day's not great, tell them how bad your day is. Just unload on them and see how they respond. I've done that. It's kind of interesting. You find out if people really want to know how you're doing or not, especially when you take 10 minutes to express this monologue about just how things are just not great all the time. I'm a sinner, you know. I'm passing through Walmart or I'm passing through Target or I'm checking out. Well, since you ask, let me just tell you, my wife's going through this, and I'm trying to pray for her, but I, I battle bitterness. I'm a broken person. They're looking at you like, man, I am sorry that I ever asked. So going through the motions is a serious offense. And I just want us all to know that because this is what gripped me, you know, because I need to make confession. I need the Holy Spirit to do what he needs to do in my life so that what I'm offering to God is presentable and is acceptable. So worshiping in spirit carries with it a sincerity, humility, affections, and all of these things. But first and foremost, the spirit of God. But worship is not just in spirit, but Jesus goes on and gives us the second component. Briefly, Jesus says you must worship in truth as well. Truth makes worship possible. I've explained that with the Jehovah's Witness and the Mormons and any other cult or any other false religion or anything like that that has a false God, a false Christ, and attempts to worship Worship is impossible without a salvific, first, a salvific knowledge of the truth. If you're not in Christ, you can't worship. You can't. So it first requires that. Here's the mechanics of it. If we aren't in Christ, that necessarily means that we stand on our own righteousness. We stand on our own righteousness. My uncle, who's a recovering alcoholic, I remember he came to me, and I've shared this story before, but I want to bring it up again because it fits. My uncle came to me after years of me sharing the gospel with him because his issue wasn't he needed to get rid of the bottle. His issue was first that he needed Jesus. That's his first issue. I think sometimes we focus on the, on the, on the secondaries, on the tertiaries, and say, oh, man, if you can just, and it shouldn't come as a surprise that people think now, if I can just clean myself up, I can be acceptable to God. Christians are probably responsible for that kind of broken theology or broken methodology. We say, look, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. Alcohol doesn't send you to hell. You're smoking, you're tattoos, you're all of these things. They don't send you to hell. The fact that you don't have Christ, that's what separates you from God. That's the remedy. And Jesus is powerful to fix all the mess that you got going on. And we'll let him do that. Right? So if we aren't in Christ, that necessarily means that we stand on our own righteousness. And Jesus said our righteousness is filthy rags. God and his perfections and purity cannot receive that. You understand you're trying to praise if you're not in Christ. Like my uncle comes to me and he says, man, I've been praying to God. I've been asking God for this. I've been worshiping God. I've been doing all these things. But he's not a believer. He's not a follower of Christ because he is the stereotypical, I need to clean these things up so that I can be acceptable. And I finally, after years of looking at him, just decided to shift gears and say, Tommy, God doesn't hear you. And he said, it <laughs> blew his hair back. And kind of mine too, because I wasn't expecting to say that. I believe that. I believe that because Isaiah 59, 2 says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It has caused him to turn his face away from you so that he will not hear Tommy's not crying out to God for salvation. He's wanting to fix his vices. And Tommy in that moment broke down and said, how do I find Christ? And he received Christ on that day. And he's been living for Jesus ever since. I wish that every person that I talked to about Jesus or every person that, whose hair got blown back responded in that way, but it doesn't. At least not that I saw in that moment. Up until that point, everything Tommy prayed that wasn't for salvation, every worship service growing up in the church where he sang songs and maybe even thought in his mind, I'm offering this to God, it was not acceptable to God because he didn't have the righteousness of Jesus, because he didn't have truth as the foundation of his life. Any worship you have ever offered that God has received is because of Christ, not you. Truth makes worship more meaningful for the worshiper. So not only does truth make worship possible, but it makes worship more meaningful for the worshiper. Theology is ground zero. Ground zero for a robust worship. Theology is. Knowledge of God. 
knowledge of truth is ground zero. The more you know of God, the better you can make much of him. Just like you who have spouses, the better you know your spouse over the years. You know how they change. You know what they like, what they don't like. Sometimes that doesn't change a thing for us hard-headed men, but we know this is what makes her tick. This is what makes her explode. And so as we know and we grow towards our spouses or friends or family, the more information we have to make much of them, better than we could before. So truth makes worship more meaningful for the worshiper. Our worship will strengthen as our theology deepens. It will strengthen. I'm not saying that God doesn't accept the worship of a brand, new belie- a brand new believer who doesn't know much of anything. I'm not saying that. God accepts that because it's covered in the righteousness of Jesus. It's not offered through filthy rags. It's offered through a sinner who's been rescued, who's been redeemed, who's been brought into the light, brought into the kingdom of God's beloved son and has the imputed righteousness of Jesus. Now it's acceptable to God and it's pleasing to God if it's offered in spirit and in truth. He didn't say, look, you've got to have certain volumes of truth in order for it to be acceptable. He said you just must worship in spirit and in truth. This woman at the well, who I believe received Christ shortly hereafter, which Austin will talk about next week, she didn't have a vast knowledge of things. She didn't understand the hypostatic union of Christ. She didn't understand all the workings of Arminianism or Calvinism or all these fun doctrinal things to explore the grandeur and the majesty of God. She didn't have all these things. She was a woman who had gone through multiple husbands. She was a woman who was loose with her life, who finally meets a Savior. I believe her worship at that moment was acceptable. There's a man named Nicholas Winton. Nicholas Winton. And I've seen this video floating around Facebook for a while, and I never knew the context. I just saw that there was this old man sitting there and there's a whole bunch of people after they were talking for a little bit, and they stood up and started clapping for him. He didn't even know who they were, who they were clapping for. He looks back, he's like, for me? For me? So I do a little bit of research, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what's going on with this guy? I can appreciate that he's being appreciated. I can appreciate that he's being venerated, that he's being honored. I'm like, well, that's cool. Maybe he's, he's done some cool stuff. A little more investigation showed me that this guy was responsible for saving the lives of 669 children during the Holocaust, right? And they're there as representatives of the remnant that was left of those 669 children that were alive because of his efforts. That changed everything for me. The respect level that I had for this person, the way that I'm able to appreciate him just went from here to here because now I have context. Now I have understanding. And this is the way it works with our worship to God. If we show up week in and week out and we hover on this generalization of God, God is love, I can't really unpack that, but I know he's love. You can worship by that, absolutely. God is merciful. I can't really unpack that. I know that the Bible teaches he's merciful. And I'm not necessarily talking about you. Maybe you can articulate the mercy of God, the love of God, the justice of God. But what about my son who's... 10 years old. Can he articulate all those things? He can articulate some because we've tried to work through some of those things. But I would say on average, probably a 10-year-old can't articulate all those things about God and about Christ. He can't do it. But does that mean his worship's not acceptable? No. It just means it's here. And as he grows in his knowledge and understanding, his appreciation for God grows. And what he offers to God is offered in accordance with God's excellent deeds and greatness. And that's what Psalm 50 says. It says, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. But in that it says, praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his excellent deeds and greatness. The more you know, the more you move from general to specific, the more you know of those excellent deeds, the more you know of those great, that, that greatness of God, the more detailed truth you know. So your worship becomes more pointed. I would even say your worship becomes more potent. Knowing more of God moves you from generalities to specifics. Theology is ground zero for robust worship. And when I say theology, I mean God as in God, Christ, the Holy Spirit. The practical outworking of worship means to come to God with a sincere heart, with humility, and a desire to have our affections stirred for Christ 
And then we declare that we, we declare what we know to be true, that is, as it has been revealed to us from the word of God. This is why worship happens everywhere. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise him in the heavens. Praise him on the earth. Praise him in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the harp and with the lyre. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And that's how it's done, in spirit and in truth. Let's pray together and we'll be dismissed. Father, my request this morning as we leave is that you would make me and that you would make us better worshipers. Make us more intentional with our worship. Help us to see truth more clearly. Help us to understand it better. Help us to apply it and spare us from misappropriating it. Lord, let others, whether it's our peers to the right and to the left, let others see and be encouraged at growing in greater depths of worship. I thank you that you've filled us with a body of worshipers, with different levels of understanding with regards to truth, but I pray that we would be good students of the word. Lord, that you would make your word more attractive to us today than it was yesterday. That you would give us the discipline to know you more. Lord, most importantly, to discover you in your word, but to pick up books where others have been impacted and influenced by the scriptures and they write about the things that God is doing. They write books on worship. They write books on understanding the scriptures. Lord, I pray that our lives would be spent growing as students. First and foremost, that we can fulfill our purpose, and that is to glorify you. Lord, may our lives be living sacrifices for you. Lord, that we might do things that are holy and pleasing and acceptable to you, that you might be glorified, and that we might represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.